Let me ask you to go ahead and turn to Isaiah, and when you get there, go to chapter 42. Isaiah 42, and we're going to read the first nine verses of that chapter, but we will be really majoring on just the first few, and one verse in particular. Isaiah chapter 42, starting in verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. New things. That sounds like a good idea for 2022, doesn't it? This is the first of four passages in this part of the book of Isaiah that are usually called servant songs servant songs. You may or may not have heard that expression before, but God is speaking here to his people through the prophet Isaiah in about 700 BC. So he's speaking to the nation of Israel through this prophet, and he's speaking about a time that is still in the future. Israel has not yet gone into her captivity in Babylon, but they very shortly will be, and it's not going to be a very good time for them. And God, through Isaiah, is speaking to the Israelites as if they're already in captivity, and he is looking ahead to that time when they will be in Babylon. So this passage is written to a people who are not just limping into the future, they are barely crawling, they are beaten, they are broken, broken down. The Israelites at this point, when this prophecy becomes very applicable to them, have been through some of the most horrifying and, and brutal things imaginable at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. They have had their, their loved ones killed in, in horrible ways. They have lost their homes. They have seen the destruction of their temple and really the breakdown of their entire way of life. And to make matters worse, it's their own fault because they betrayed their God. They disbelieved his promises. They despised his steadfast love. They rebelled against his leadership again and again and again. And so this finally happened and they would have no one to blame but themselves for the catastrophe and for their captivity. And it is into this context that God starts talking about this person that he calls my servant. My servant. And he starts by telling Israel and us, right here in the first verse of Isaiah 42, to behold, look, check it out. Lift up your eyes and lay your eyes upon this person this servant. That's what I want to help you do this morning. And it gets a little confusing because the servant sounds at some times in Isaiah like God is talking about the whole nation, the nation of Israel, 
Remember, they were supposed to be God's servant among the nations to bring God's goodness and God's glory to the world. But then most times it doesn't sound like God's talking to Israel. It sounds like he's talking to an individual person who is part of Israel or in some sense representing Israel. And then God says that the servant is sent to deliver Israel. Well, Israel can't deliver itself. So it gets kind of confusing. But what it comes down to when you look at these four servant songs is that this servant character from Isaiah is going to be He's a future person who is going to be part of Israel, and he will in some way represent the whole nation of Israel, and he will succeed where Israel failed. He will be the one to complete Israel's mission to show the love and glory of God to the whole world, and he will redeem Israel in the process. That's the servant. But how will the servant accomplish this? We have kind of a surprising picture here of this deliverer, this servant. It is not the picture of a hot-headed, flaming revolutionary. So often, if you think about someone bringing change or someone starting a revolution or someone you know, just, just, just changing the world, you, you picture some no-holds-barred, take-no-prisoners, revolutionary leader who, who leaves a trail of destruction behind him. Hasn't this happened so many times in the last hundred years even? In dozens, maybe hundreds of nations and cities around the world in revolutions and wars from China to Russia to today, places like Yemen and Haiti and and so many other places. The philosophy, when you're trying to change the world and you're trying to to maybe bring in a better world, is usually, well, you can't make an omelet without doing what? Breaking some eggs. And in the name of justice or in the name of equality or in the name of uplifting the poor or whatever it might be, people end up getting crushed in the machinery of change. Because individuals don't matter anymore just the cause but this is not that kind of a revolution it's not that kind of a deliverance and this is not that kind of a leader delivering justice is not an easy thing to do is it you ever try to deliver justice i mean even at a small level even at a a individual or a family level if you're a parent with more than one child Did you ever walk into a room when they were little and they were both crying or screaming and you walked in and you said, what happened? And then you have two screaming, crying children pointing at each other and saying, he did it or she did it. Good luck bringing justice to that situation, right? That isn't going to happen. But even in bigger issues, maybe in our lives or maybe even in our, 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 our society, our community, who can bring justice, real justice? Who can set things right? without compromising God's holiness, and at the same time be merciful and gentle with those who are hurting and vulnerable and feel like they're limping. Maybe another way to ask the question is like this. Is there someone who can bring deliverance without destruction? Is there someone who can save us without blowing everybody up? There is. And I really want to key in this morning on one particular verse that describes this person with some beautiful poetic language, and it's verse 3, where he says of this servant, a bruised reed he will not break. A bruised reed. What is a bruised reed? What's a reed? Well, if you're a saxophone player, a reed is a very important little piece of wood that you don't want to break, because if you do, the concert's over. But you've got to be really careful of it because if you b- bump it up against something, it'll, it'll, it'll snap pretty easily or it'll get a chip in it and you'll sound all squeaky all because your reed got broken. Well, 
That's not the reed that Isaiah is talking about because he didn't play the saxophone because unfortunately it hadn't been invented yet. But you've all been to the pond and you've seen the grassy reeds and what, well, the flowers on them sometimes sticking up out of the, the water and you realize how, how fragile they are and how, it could get, how if, they, if they break, they kind of, they kind of bend over and, and, and they just sort of sag. And if they're bruised, they're just, they're just, about, they're just about to break. And they're so fragile. That's a bruised reed. A bruised reed is a person, a person who is so beaten up by life and is feeling increasingly fragile, like one more blow will cause them to buckle and fall apart. If you're a bruised reed, then just one more bad thing, one more bad report from your doctor, one more injustice, one more stroke of bad luck, one more crushing, accusing, criticizing lecture from somebody, one more attack, and you're going to go down. Have you ever felt like a bruised reed? Maybe even today? What about a, uh, a faintly burning wick, or in some translations it says a smoldering wick? This might be even easier to understand. It's a candle that's about to go out. This is, this is another fragile person. In this case, it's a person who has tried to hold on to hope, but there have been so many disappointments. There have been so many broken promises from people. There have been so many times you've tried your best only to crash and burn again. So many times you've dared to think that it will be different this time, but it hasn't been. Maybe it's happened in your relationships. Maybe it's happened in your work life or in your family somewhere or in some other area. But in either case, you, just, you feel like if there's just one more disappointment, one, the flame of hope in your life is going to go out, and you're just going to fall into despair. And regardless of, of which of these two descriptions fits you the most, maybe the worst part of it, of it all is that you know that some of it, and maybe most of it, is your fault. If you hadn't just made that, that really bad decision, if you hadn't given in to that strong temptation, if you, haven't made that, if you hadn't made that selfish choice, or said those awful words, then you wouldn't be having these issues. And so one of the reasons that you're a reed about to break is that you've been beating yourself up for a long time. Because at some level, you feel that if you just punish yourself enough, then life or fate or, or God or whoever won't have to punish you anymore because you can do it yourself. But you know what? In the end, beating yourself up turns out to be just one more form of self-salvation. You know why? What you're trying to do is you're trying to atone for your own sins and failures by punishing yourself. But it won't work. You're not the person who can do that. Now, of course, beating ourselves up is only one way we respond when we're bruised and vulnerable. We might respond by blaming others for our problems or complaining or allowing ourselves to give in to resentment or bitterness with life or with other people or even with God. We might retreat into an addiction or some kind of means of escape or to dull the pain. Or we might instead really work hard, you know, get busy with life, do so many things, surround ourselves with comforts or distractions or activities or other people so you won't have to think about the pain. You know, kind of like you're a shark and as long as you keep moving you won't sink. One other option is to build up a convincing religious box. You know, take care, spruce up all the stuff on the outside of your life so that it looks really good. And then try to live inside of that box like a strong protective case that's put around the reed 
so it won't break. Almost like a, a, a hard cast around an injury that really needs surgery, not just a cast. By the way, that's what the people in Jesus' time were mostly told to do by the people who were the Bible scholars of Jesus' day. They'd say, well, are you, are you hurting? Are you feeling vulnerable? Are you feeling oppressed? Are you feeling condemned? Are you feeling guilty? Well, then just stop doing so many sinful things. You know, I mean, and, and while you're at it, be more religious. Study the law of God and obey it. Fast twice a week. Wash your hands in the correct ceremonial way. Try harder to be good. Pray more. Give more money. Attend more religious gatherings. Maybe find a really holy person and try to imitate him or her. That should work. But just get your act together. Act is probably a good word, right? Jesus, when he started his ministry, walked into a place where this was the preferred strategy for dealing with pain and insecurity and guilt. Just be super religious. And, and, and by the time he got there, most people had either given up on this or they were torturing themselves trying to measure up. And in fact, the ones who had the resources to come closest to pulling it off, people like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, those guys had built such a religious shield around themselves that it was, it was so impenetrable that the bruised reed or smoldering wick that they had inside was so well protected that it was no longer accessible even to Jesus behind that hard, religious, self-righteous shell. Maybe that's where some of us find ourselves today. Well, how would Jesus confront this situation? As it says in verse 2, Jesus did not raise his voice in the streets. He didn't carry a poster around demanding change or a megaphone calling people to join him and taking down the establishment or dismantling the synagogue or even overthrowing the Romans. And when Jesus did raise his voice and call out, remember what he said? He said, come to me. Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, all of you who are tired of trying to measure up and failing, all of you who want to stop beating yourselves up, all of you who feel like you're hanging by a thread and one more heartbreaking disappointment or one more crushing blow will send you over the edge, come to me and I will give you rest. Trade burdens with me, he says. I'll carry your heavy load. You take my light load in return. And you will have a rest that goes so much deeper than just a moment of relief or a season of escape. You will have permanent rest for your soul. It might interest you to know that this verse, and I just learned this a couple of months ago, but this verse, Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, is actually the only place in the whole New Testament where Jesus describes his own heart. The only place in the entire New Testament where Jesus says, this is what my heart is like. And did you notice the words that he used? Gentle and lowly. That's his heart. And, and the heart, that word heart, means the very core of a person's character, who the person really is. So that's the character of Jesus at its deepest level. Gentle, humble, willing to stoop down to where you are and, and deal with whatever ugly and shameful sins and whatever heartbreaking regrets you've been carrying around. He will get involved and He will treat you with tenderness and forgiveness and compassion. That's Jesus. Amen. That's His heart. That's who He is. The only question is, are you willing to remove your bruised reed from the shield 
that you've built up around it, whether that's a religious shield or a busyness and accomplishment shield or an escape and addiction shield or a criticizing, blame-shifting, fault-finding shield or even a beating-yourself-up shield or some combination of those things melded together. Take that shield, lay it down, and give him the bruised reed or the smoldering wick. Give him the life that's hanging by a thread. Give it to him. Trust him. He may give you some instant relief and comfort, or he may change the situation. Or he may change you. I can't promise that he'll give you immediate relief and comfort. I won't do that. But I can pretty much guarantee you that he'll do the second. And he himself has promised to give you rest at the soul level. But you have to have trust enough in him to open up, to admit the places where you're falling apart and only pretending to hold it together, to admit the places where your disappointment with life or with God or with somebody else is making you cold and cynical, to admit the places where you feel beat down and helpless to do anything about it, to, to admit the places where you are guilty and full of shame. One of our new members in her interview was uh, telling us about one of her sons, uh, her grown son, and she said that, that he was just one of those people who had a talent for taking broken things apart and putting them back together the right way, whereas she usually could only take things apart. And I could relate to that. I, I, I can really, I love taking broken things apart. I do. But I've learned over the years not to do that until the financial risk of doing so has gotten pretty low. Because for me, the putting them back together is a challenge most of the time. So I typically only take apart cheap things where it doesn't matter a whole lot if they go back together and where there's very little to lose. Jesus is different. Jesus is different. You know what? A lot of people can take you apart. A lot of people can analyze your problems for you all day long, probably, and they'll be right some of the time. But Jesus can take you apart and actually put you back together the right way if you'll trust him. You say, why can I, how can I trust him? Why should I trust him? Let me tell you why. Isaiah 42, as I mentioned, is only the first of four of these servant songs, these poems, really, that were written about Jesus 700 years before he was even born. And the last and longest servant song, servant song number four, spans part of Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. And in that song, it says this, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. That's the, the King James Version that you may have memorized at some point. And I saw, hey, there's that word bruised again. So I looked it up, and the Hebrew word for bruised there is actually a different word than the word in chapter 42. It's stronger. It tells us that Jesus, Jesus was more than bruised. Jesus was more than just fiercely oppressed. Jesus was crushed. And some of your translations will say that. Another translation, you could say that he was shattered. He was broken. In fact, his, his faintly burning wick was snuffed out on the cross. Why? So that yours wouldn't have to be. That's how you know you can trust him. 
And you know, to be true to Isaiah 42, we really have to admit that an awful lot of this chapter is about God's servant establishing justice, not just for individuals, but for the world. God is a God of justice. God is a God who always judges justly. He hates injustice. He hates oppression. He hates unrighteousness. And of course, a lot of people today, are they not, they're calling out for justice. We want justice. We want racial justice. We want social justice. We want legal justice. And this scripture, along with many others, promises us that one day, yes, Jesus will indeed establish perfect justice on the earth in all of its dimensions. It will happen. But if we're honest, in all of our calls for justice, we have to face the fact that if we really receive perfect justice, we'd be in trouble. Because no one is righteous enough to stand in God's courtroom and be declared innocent. How can God's servant be so tender, so kind, so gentle, so merciful, and still be holy and still establish God's justice in the world? The only reason he can do that is because he has received the just punishment from God upon himself. You see, true justice comes with consequences for the unjust. They have to pay the price for their actions, which is why we might hesitate to approach Jesus for justice sometimes or or even for relief from a problem because we realize that a lot of it has to do with our own sin, and we don't want that coming out because we don't want to deal with that. But when we repent of that sin, when we own up to it and bring it to Jesus, Jesus can actually look past it. Why? Because it's already been taken care of. He knows because he's the one that did it. He's the one that paid the price for it. And because of this, he is able to deal gently and mercifully with you, whatever your situation this morning and whatever part you had to play in getting into the fix in which you find yourself. So as we come to this communion table this morning, let me remind you that this is not a place for perfect people. It is not a place for hard, protective shells and religious performance. It is not a place to beat yourself up or to think about how others have messed up your life. It is a place to come clean before God. And it's a safe place to do that because Jesus, your Savior, will not break a bruised reed and he will not snuff out a smoldering wick. Instead, he is in the process of taking your life apart, maybe painfully sometimes, and putting it back together the right way. Or he will be in that process if you simply place your faith in him this morning.